Good morning, everyone. Go ahead, and the remaining ones of you can find a seat. Tom Brady. Exactly. Tom Brady. Tom Brady is 45 years old. I don't know if you knew that. He's 45 years old. Uh, He is in better shape than most of us ever have been or ever will be. Uh, Tom Brady has millions and millions of dollars. Uh, Those of you that don't know, bless you. He is a uh, quarterback in the NFL. And so uh, as American as apple pie, Tom Brady uh, has received much um, praise and attention over the years uh, because of his great skill. However, if you look at Tom Brady's birth certificate, uh, you would think that being a professional athlete at 45 would mean that he's past his prime. Uh, At the age of 40, Tom Brady won his, I believe, his third MVP award in the NFL. Um, I've won zero. I'm 30. So Uh, Tom Brady is someone that is not what it seems he is. if you just look at the data, you'd think Tom Brady uh, probably way past his prime, probably can't play football anymore. Um, in fact, most, I think that the average football career is somewhere near like two or three years. Uh, Tom Brady has played for a lot longer than that. Um, not what it seems. This is a conch shell. Does anyone know where conch shells are found? In the ocean, very good. Um, if you've ever been to Turtle Talk with Crush, this is kind of like that, but on a Sunday morning. Um, conch shells are found in the ocean. It's interesting because if you saw off part of it, you can blow in it, and it sounds like a horn. I'm not going to do that this morning. I know some of us are more sensitive in hearing. Uh, not going to saw off the end and blow in it. Um, however, this conch shell is also begins to not quite be as it appears. It looks like a shell to start with, but you find out you can blow in it, and then it makes a sound. Uh, we were joking that it makes the sound kind of like coming back to Narnia, but uh, none of us have been there. Um, and if you were at Hume Lake two weeks ago with us, the sound that it makes signifies some things, and it signifies uh, when to be at certain places. So the conch shell has several more meanings than just being a shell, especially at Wildwood at Hume Lake. Turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. There are numerous things in this world that will not be as they seem. In fact, the older you get, the more that you realize that wealth is not quite what it seems. Uh, That having money or fame or the things that this world seems to prize at a young age ends up not being worth it in the end. The psalmist in Psalm 73 is having a little bit of that crisis where he is seeing the the people who are, are making sin abound and wickedness flourish they are seemingly untouched by disease, kind of like Tom Brady. Um, They're seemingly untouched by difficulty. How come they have it so easy? How come they are prospering? The psalmist would even ask. Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly, 
God is good to Israel. And if I were to add a commentary in there, I I think that Asaph, the the writer of the psalm, would want to say, and I want to believe that. I want to think that that's real and that's true. But sometimes I have a hard time seeing that. Sometimes it's difficult for me to believe that God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. In fact, that's the commentary he adds. But as for me, he says, my feet almost stumbled. I almost slipped up. I almost didn't quite get it. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I started to believe their press, what they were starting to say, what they were sharing about who they were. I started to believe that everything that they posted on Instagram was real that their lives were all together, that they had no difficulty or challenges. I started to buy it, the psalmist says. Started to wonder, is God good to those who are wicked? Is he blessing the wicked? The psalmist has to step back and and process a little bit through this with us, how the wicked seem to prosper, how the wicked seem to have it all together, yet in the end, it's not going to quite be the case. Uh, point number one in your notes. The psalmist notices that there are times when it seems to us that the wicked prosper and they have it all together. The psalmist notices that there are times when it seems to us that the wicked prosper and they have it all together. Verse 4, he says, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. In this time, the fatness was a symbol of wealth, a symbol of prosperity, or or doing very well for yourself um, that you could provide enough to eat that much. Uh, The psalmist sees, hey, they don't even feel difficulty. They don't even have any pangs until they die. They're not going through anything hard. Their bodies are fat and sleek, clearly from looking at them have it all together they have everything you could ever want they're not in trouble as others are they are not stricken like the rest of mankind they don't have the same difficulties that we have the psalmist sees the rich as being completely put together and provided for this is the conundrum that we have as believers where yeah, we know that money is not the, the main goal in this life. But sometimes it feels like life would be easier if we had a little bit more. Sometimes it looks like life would be easier if we had a little bit more. And a little bit more is never enough. The psalmist himself realizes that eventually. But right now he's just walking through. This is how they look. They're arrogant. They're prideful. Um, if you've ever watched the NBA, um, people are very proud of their dunks and proud of their moves. It's a very individualistic sport. Kind of like in uh, college football when a defensive player makes a tackle and does his job. He does a little dance. Um, people can be very prideful of the victories that they have and seem like they have it all together. Back in verse 6, he says, Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. 
Their eyes well out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. He's saying these people are covered in sin. Why are they prospering? Why are they winning? It doesn't make sense that these people are not being stricken and slain. Why are the proud being lifted up? It says they scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. They seem untouchable. They seem as they can do anything they want and there would never be any opposition or difficulty. In fact, he's, he's frustrated because they're speaking against the heavens. They're speaking against God. Remember his premise. He starts off by saying, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, I'm noticing these things and I'm having difficulty reconciling the two. How come God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart? But it seems as if those who are wicked in heart and have wicked intentions, who are not sons of God, are winning. How come it seems like the wicked prosper? And one that is not unfamiliar to us today. Where it seems like we could be obedient and faithful followers of God, and yet people who are wicked and sinful are the ones who get all the blessings. You have a solution for that in a second here. Verse 10, God, your people are seeing this. They're seeing the wicked prosper. They're seeing the evil further their kingdoms and their realms. They're seeing them speak against heaven and nothing happens to them. And so he says, therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, in a very elementary apologetic, they say, how can God know? If this is what I'm seeing. Is there knowledge in the most high? Now, if you've read scripture, you know that that statement is very dangerous. <laughs> in fact, you could probably think to uh, a certain man's friends who made such statements. Um, I heard this phrase the other day that was really good. And they, they said that Job's friends were great friends until they opened their mouths. Um, Job's friends said such things. And we know how that story ended with God showing up in the whirlwind and said, who, is, who are you who darkens counsel without wisdom? Sit and I will speak to you. I will show you the ways. And then he says, where were you? Where were you? And in a, this psalmist is going to say the same thing. He's going to say the exact thing. Is there knowledge in the Most High? This is what God's children are saying, the psalmist says. Behold, verse 12, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. 
The psalmist is frustrated because he says, I've been obedient. I've been faithful. I've walked with you. I've kept your commandments. I've been the one who's followed you every step of the way. How come it's the wicked who are prospering? How come there aren't any blessings left for me? That's what he thought. And I want to thank the psalmist one day in heaven for for being willing to state his honest thoughts. Because I think sometimes we think this. Sometimes we see the wicked prosper and we think, how come they're prospering? And I've been obedient. I've been faithful. I've sacrificed. God, where is my blessing? Where is my prospering? Where is my wealth? Where is my fame? The psalmist basically says, I kept this to myself. Verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus. If I had said, I will say this to people. I will tell them what the truth is. I would have betrayed the generation of your children. The psalmist had some parts to him that were right. He understood, look, by worldly standards, it seems like the wicked are winning. It seems like the wicked prosper. It seems like they gather and gain for themselves wealth and nothing happens to them. Seems like they never get sick. They never have a difficulty. And yet they taunt the Lord. They taunt his children. They say whatever they want and gather for themselves people who praise them. And nothing happens to them. But maybe, maybe the wicked are like Tom Brady or Conch Shell. And they're not quite what they seem. Maybe prosperity and gaining are not quite what the world thinks they are. You'll remember a parable that I think speaks well to this in the New Testament, the parable of the two sons, often called the parable of the prodigal son. Usually the the prodigal is the one focused on. The prodigal goes out and he spends his father's wealth. He basically asks for his inheritance early, says, Father, I wish you were dead. Um goes out, spins it all, loses it, comes back, and the father welcomes him with open arms and gives him a big hug and slays the fattened calf. And that's sometimes where people in the story, for the parable is not about the prodigal son. The parable is about the older brother. See, the older brother comes to the father and he says, Dad, I've been faithful. I've been obedient. I've been serving here every day. You've never thrown me a party. You've never given to me the fattened calf. And you give him a necklace and he's just gone out. And he's ruined your wealth. The older brother is very similar here to Asaph in this psalm. Where he says, how come if I've been obedient and you're good to those who are pure in heart, the wicked are the ones prospering? Verses 16 through 22. The Lord reveals to the psalmist that things are not always as they seem. Things are not always as they seem. Verse 16, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. 
I don't know how to wrap my mind around this, he says. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Tramper Longman III wrote a, a commentary on the Psalms, and um, I believe he's currently teaching out of Gateway Seminary, and I think it's in Pasadena. Um, but he says this. He says, present realities are not ultimate realities. The way that things seem now are not how they, how they always will be. In fact, one of my favorite answers to the problem of evil is that God did do something about it, and he's going to finish the job. It's not over. God will finish the job. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs say. So, he finds out the answer by coming into the sanctuary of God, by drawing near to his presence, by seeking the Lord's counsel, instead of assuming for him his answer. There's, there's wisdom to that. I think sometimes... Sometimes we can learn a lot and gather a lot of knowledge and a lot of information and, and we can decide that we can become self-sufficient in how we interact with and, and view the Lord. Why would we need to seek Him in prayer? Why would we need to fellowship with His saints if we have achieved such greatness in our knowledge? I thank the Lord for the psalmist's humility here where he just draws back near into the presence of God and says... I'm going to go to his sanctuary. And that first step of obedience back into the sanctuary of the Lord is key for the difference in the psalmist's view. Because the psalmist was going to speak to the generation of God's children and say, it's not worth it to be obedient because you see the wicked prosper. But he says, I drew back near to the sanctuary of God, and it was in the sanctuary of God that I discerned their end. Basically, he's saying, when I was in God's presence... I figured out their destination. Truly, you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. The psalmist says, I didn't know what I was talking about. And again, if you remember the story of Job, that's how Job finishes. I spoke of things I didn't understand. Things too wonderful for me. And God spoke to him and clarified for him. Um, not the answers to his questions, but clarified for him the person of God and said, look, God is above and beyond. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. I think that this problem is not unfamiliar in Scripture entirely. In fact, if you'd like to turn with me to a book called Habakkuk, 
Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. It's in the Minor Prophets. You've got to work those fingers to get there. Sometimes in life we will have doubts. And in our walk with the Lord, that is a normal part of wrestling with Him. But it's what we do with those doubts and where we go that characterizes us as followers of Christ. The psalmist made the right move. He went into the sanctuary of the Lord. Habakkuk, at the beginning of his uh, book here, self-titled book, um, he goes to the Lord and cries for help. We'll start in verse 2. Habakkuk 1, verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law, so your scripture, is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Lord, we don't have any help. We don't have any support. People are sinning. People are doing whatever they want. And you're not doing anything, Habakkuk says. The Lord in His graciousness, Steph's statement says, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. And he goes through a little bit of his plan. Habakkuk was facing a similar crisis as that of the author of Psalm 73. Lord, violence, wickedness, evil are prospering. And I look at these things and I think, how are you letting this happen? I think that in our world, especially in the past decade, but truthfully, since the Lord created it and people fell into sin, a wickedness and evil are not hard to find. Um, difficulty, sin, is not far from us. We see all the time the wicked prospering. We see all the time evil being praised. And we may sit here and think, Lord, how long are you going to look at iniquity and not do anything about it? How long are you going to let this happen and not make things right? And then the Lord would graciously speak to us like he spoke to Habakkuk and like the psalmist will figure out here. I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. Even if you had the why you probably wouldn't believe it. Even if you had the answers. We, uh, my wife and I are praying through several situations and um, one of them we were talking about last night and what I said is I, I, I'm a very optimistic person. I don't know if I've shared this. Um, I can be blindly optimistic. In fact, uh, we were looking at houses with um, our realtor, Jim Hall, and there was this one house that had, like, um, splatter stains around the staircase. And uh, I remember walking out and thinking, you know, 
I don't know. I, I could see us living there. Uh, clearly, there was like a ceiling leak that um, was not addressed, and there were still stains from the. Um, that's just to illustrate. I can sometimes be blindly optimistic, and I, I get that. Um, but what I, what we were processing and praying through this last night, what I said was, sometimes I don't know how, and sometimes I don't know why, but I do know that the Lord provides, and I know that He knows. And that is enough for me to be optimistic. That God knows how. He knows why. He knows where. And sometimes it's not for us to know that. Sometimes it's not on us to have the answers. We're not the ones making the decisions. The Lord is. Are we faithful? Are we trusting Him? Even in difficulty. See, I think that our tendency is, as followers of Christ is to say, Lord, I'm going to be obedient and trust you with my life until I decide that what you're doing isn't good enough and then I'm going to take it back and handle it myself. It's conditional trust. It's conditional faith. Uh, and that's just not how faith or trust works. The Lord is the one who guides He's the one who knows the whys. He's the one who knows the hows. In fact, if you read the book of Habakkuk, it's one of my favorite minor prophets. He says the Lord is on his, in his holy temple. He does whatever he pleases. The Lord never really gives explanation to Habakkuk. Kind of like he never really gives explanation to Job for why things are happening. But he does set them back and say, have faith and be obedient and trust that you're not the ones making the decisions around here. First, verses 21 and 22 of Psalm 73, he's, he says, My soul was embittered. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. I didn't know what I was talking about. I didn't see the whole picture. So let's end with his conclusion. Verses 23 through 28. The solution of the psalmist is to be near God. That's your blank, near God. That's the title of the sermon. And I was telling the elders, this really um, challenged my grammatical muscles because near God doesn't sound like the right term. But just trust me in verse 28, that's the term he uses. He doesn't say near to God. He says near God. Verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. It's not about what I gain or get in this life about who my God is and who I serve. I was trying to think through examples of people who in Scripture sacrificed obediently, willingly, and didn't prosper as the world sees prosperity. One pretty good example comes to mind. The person of Jesus. Somebody who was born in a manger Somebody who walked life obediently following the Lord to the point, as Philippians 2 says, to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
He left glory to become a man, walked obediently, died obediently, rose from the dead, and received glory back when he ascended into heaven, sitting now at the right hand of the Father. Glory is not on earth. Praise, fame, prosperity is not on earth. It's in heaven. Jesus was the best example of that. Verse 27. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. The wickedness, the difficulty, the the things that we see that we think go unpunished, God sees. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, verse 27 says. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Really quick then, that, that just to point this out to you, in that second line, that verse 28, there's three lines there. The second line, it says the Lord God. Lord is lowercase except for the L capital. And God is all capitalized. What that is, it's a signif- it signifies for us that the psalmist is calling God Adonai Yahweh. The Lord God. So typically we see the Lord in all caps, right? And we know that that's using the term Yahweh, but the way that we have it translated and interpreted in our scriptures is it capitalizes Lord. But when it says Lord, and Lord is lowercase and God is capitalized, we know that he's saying Adonai Yahweh, which is Lord and then his name. The psalmist's conclusion, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. It's interesting to me that he discovers this when he comes back to the sanctuary of God. When he comes back into his presence, he sees that it is good for him to be near God. When he was out in the world and he was seeing all these things happen, that was blinded to him. It wasn't as clearly evident when he came back into the sanctuary, he noticed that it was good for him to be near God. And he concluded with that. He ends the psalm by saying that. And his goal is not to tell of all the wicked, difficult, prosperous people, as he was going to do in verse 15. But he, in verse 28, concludes by saying, that I may tell of all your works. And that is his goal to glorify and praise the name of the Lord. Application. When evil is praised, we must not lose heart, but press on. Evil is praised, we must not lose heart, but press on. And you know what? If you are, are not used to getting watching evil get praised, you should get used to it. Um, this was one of the complaints that, that God had against the prophets all the way back in the Old Testament. You who call wicked good. Why do you call wicked good? Why do you call evil good? Um, evil 
is going to be praised. And we should get used to that. That doesn't mean that it's normal. That doesn't mean that it's good. We should get used to it in the sense that it shouldn't shock us away from the Lord. Uh, when evil is praised, we don't lose heart. We press on toward the Lord. Because we know that this isn't forever. We know that this is temporary. We know that God wins. One of my favorite things to do when I'm uh, feeling this way, and I think that a lot of us will feel this way several points during our lives, probably even this week. When I feel this way, one of my favorite things to do is to go to Revelation 21 and 22 and just look at how the story ends. Where he will be their God and we will be his people. Where he will wipe away every tear from our eye. Where death will be no more. There will be mourning or crying or sickness nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Eventually, these things will pass. But our hope, our investment isn't in this life. And so if we expect that in this life God's going to bless us, prosper us, give us wealth and keep us healthy, uh, we should know that that's not when this comes. That in this life, if they persecuted the Son, they will persecute us also. If He had difficulty, we will have difficulty also. If He didn't have a place to lay His head, maybe we shouldn't expect to be prospering. Number two. Wait until we fully understand the story before jumping to conclusions. And that's, that's what he started to do in verse 15. Wait until we fully understand the story before jumping to conclusions. And, and this is just on a meta-narrative scale, not, not an immediate. I mean, I'm sure that applies to your situations too. This proverb is about hearing both sides before arriving at a conclusion. But on a larger scale of the story that we're in, called the story of creation, we shouldn't jump to conclusions. Uh, sometimes A plus B doesn't equal C. Sometimes A plus B plus C plus D plus E plus F plus G equals H. Um, sometimes there's more to the story. We need to wait until we fully understand the story before jumping to conclusions. Maybe we need to not know the hows or the whys, but the who. Maybe we can be okay not having to be in control of every situation because truthfully, we are not the sovereign ones. We can't really do anything about it anyway. Finally, in all things, there is peace when we draw near to God. In all things, there is peace when we draw near... Oh, I said to God. (laughs) In all things, there is peace when we draw near God. Um, Remember... Uh, the psalmist says in verse 16 that he went into the sanctuary. And in verse 28, he concludes with saying, It is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God, Adonai Yahweh, my refuge. My refuge. If you're a millennial, you can translate this safe space. The Lord is our refuge. He is a place where we can draw near He is a place where we are truly at peace. If God is for us, Paul says, then who can be against us? 
This time we're going to go into a time of communion. I invite the elders and the worship team to come on up. Lord's Supper is one of two ordinances that we celebrate at Village Bible Church. We celebrate the ordinance of communion and baptism. Um, here at Village, I, I, I need you to understand that, that these crackers are um, from a box, and they were broken up in the kitchen earlier. That's it. Um, so these crackers are not anything special except for what they symbolize. And they symbolize the broken body of Christ, which was broken for us, for our sins. The juice is grape juice that was poured from a box um, and poured into these small cups. And the juice itself is not special, but it's what it symbolizes that's important. And it symbolizes the spilt blood of Christ that was spilled for my sins and for yours. Yes, when we sinned, somebody's body was broken and somebody's blood was spilt to pay for that. And that is costly. Lord God, we are ever grateful and humbled by your sacrifice on the cross. Lord, your broken body, your spilt blood, which was done for us because of what we did. Lord, we don't deserve it. We, we couldn't do anything to pay for it, Lord. Help us to just obediently walk with you, to be near God in all facets of life. Lord, in you there is freedom and peace. I ask that in this room that people would find freedom and peace in your presence, even this week, even today. In Jesus' name.